So we have been practicing here together for around about a day, 24 hours or so, maybe a little more. <coughs> and I'd like to just offer some reflections on the process of what we've been engaged in, being here on retreat and cultivating qualities of, of loving kindness and mindfulness, being here with our experience and seeing what's possible for us in this situation, in this space. Coming to sit down, sort of, uh, sometimes little things touch us, coming to sit down here. I uh, went to start to fill up my water glass and my eyesight's not so good these days, so I didn't notice until I was about to pour some water into it than someone had already done so. And just kind of interesting, that sweet little moment of, oh, someone thought of me. Someone filled my glass up, and at least I think so. It might have been that I did it myself and completely forgot previously, but I think someone else did. And it's like, oh, how nice. And I might have a guess as to who that would be, but I'm not entirely sure. And the way in which I think we know, we recognise, it's not unfamiliar to any of us, I trust, that, that sense of just the way we're touched when someone expresses some kindness towards us. It doesn't require some great act or marvellous thing. It's just sometimes those simple little things that we see, that we feel, that are actually very much part of the fabric of what's here at Gaia House. And I think part of what as many of you refer to some sort of quality that's here in different ways that supports what we do. A number of people touched on it in groups today. But that sense of coming here and, oh, one of the things that's here is there's a palpable sense of kindness. That so much of what is done here is done out of kindness and in a way that kind of leaves its imprint in a way. It's a felt thing. There's not just the silence, which is beautiful and powerful and the... The, the dedication and courage and commitment of practice of many dozens and hundreds and and hundreds of, of people who've practiced here over the, the years and the decades. But also this is a sense of a lot of kindness has been brought to bear in the space. Kindness kindness in the serving and the supporting of others, kindness in the caring for, connecting with ourselves. And so there's, there's something in this that's, that's touching that I think we, we recognise as inherently of value, of benefit. It's not generally that we need to argue too much about uh, whether it's useful, helpful or appreciated for there to be more kindness in the world. Something we perhaps wonder about how that could be, but the fact that we recognise its value is it's kind of pretty obvious in a way, it seems to me. And so we start to look, we start to reflect upon and explore for ourselves, what is it that supports this quality? What is it that supports our capacity to connect with kindness? To find that place in ourselves, which is there in all of us, though we don't always find our way to it easily, we don't necessarily trust that it's there for us, that it's available to us, that it's within us already. Because we've probably all of us had experiences that have 
challenged, that have threatened, that have scared, that have hurt us in different ways, so that we've kind of become more protective, a little careful, and sometimes hesitant, or even maybe at some level unsure whether it's a good idea to sit in a place of kindness and openness and caring, because that's also a place we might feel somewhat vulnerable or that we could get hurt there. And, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea. And yet, there's a deep pain, there's a deep sorrow, and I think in our hearts also, a deep suffering, to the degree that our hearts are closed, to the degree that we do not feel an ease and a, a flowing or an openness of access to a sense of kindliness, of friendliness to another, to ourselves. Wherever we notice that, there's kind of, it's like there's something where we feel some limitation in that capacity. When we're present, when we're there, when we're not judging that. But there's also, I think, naturally a kind of a sorrow or a sadness that we might encounter. Where we, we feel the limitation of something we know to be more possible, to be profoundly beautiful, and yet not always accessible to us. And so, so it's important to come to the process from the sense of exploring what is it that allows, supports, and sustains our connection to this capacity of heart that is caring, that is friendly, that is wishing well for others, for ourselves. As a couple of people observed in one of the, the group meetings this afternoon, it's sometimes the case we don't know how much is happening while we're here. We kind of look and see, and my body aches, and my mind's all over the place, and as far as feeling loving kindness, well, well, maybe I noticed a couple of sort of moments of it once, but a lot of the time it might not feel to be what's actually taking place. And yet often, as, as, as someone was observing, when we come to the end of the retreat or go home into our life, we suddenly realize, wow, something shifted in my heart. Something's moved in how I'm responding or relating or feeling touched by or connected with what's around me. So it's important to really allow the process to find its natural way. There's a, there's a great story um, told about Jack Cornfield, who's one of the sort of senior teachers of this Western Insight tradition based in California. And he's an he's a interesting and a wonderful character. And anyway, once he was teaching a retreat, and one of the staff on the retreat um, came into the, the staff dining room in the evening and asked Jack about one of their friends who was on the retreat and said, Jack, how's my friend doing? And Jack's response was, oh, your friend's doing very well. So the staff member asked about someone else they knew on the retreat. How's that, how's that retreat doing? Jack said, also, oh, yeah, that person, they're doing very well. Another staff member overhearing the conversation asked Jack about their friend. Yeah, doing very well. And they looked at Jack and said, Jack, what do you mean by doing very well? And Jack smiled and responded. He said, oh, they're still here. <laughs> so there's something in this that perhaps we can take, particularly if you're wondering how you're doing on the retreat, just that we're still here, that we're still showing up, that we're still engaging in whatever way is possible for you 
in the circumstances you have and actually allowing yourself to appreciate just that just the simple nobility of showing up it is not a small thing the number of people who will in their lives spend even one day doing what we've been doing in the way we've been doing although in fact there will be plenty of people who will do it as a proportion of the total of people in this world it's a very 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 small amount I guess you could recognize that because it's not easy because it's quite challenging and you know when I come in to give a talk at the beginning of the um, at this point in the evening I'm very much moved to take a moment just to bow down to the Buddha and of course this isn't actually literally the Buddha it's a you know it's a image or a rupa as it's called in the tradition the form the shape of that but for me representing a human being who practiced so hard who worked really in the face of some extreme difficulties and challenges to deepen to grow to bring forth something beautiful and remarkable into this world and who in doing that represents our own capacity as human beings to do likewise the capacity to wake up the capacity for our hearts flowering in its fullness of of kindness of care of compassion this is something that in any one of us developing or deepening we're also representing and supporting that potential for everybody else and to be able to pause again some you know the Buddha's real understanding here with regard to this particular quality of kindness and I mentioned this I think maybe in the morning or last night that he, he understood that the condition that gives rise to kindness to the sense of friendliness to well-wishing is the quality of appreciation when we can look upon something or someone and attend to give attention to that which is wholesome that which is of value that which we appreciate we're so trained it seems so well skilled in noticing what's not okay and what needs to be fixed and what could be improved and for most of us we could probably come up with a reasonably good long list about all those things that need fixing improving could be just a little more of this or a little less of that and all of that and of course in our world that goes on rather a lot we see and the effect of it is to kind of somehow tighten or contract or narrow the aperture of our hearts access to ourself to others it's almost like the the framework through which our heart can express what it has to offer becomes constricted and tight for us because this habit we have to look for the problem and what needs fixing and it's interesting when we reflect on this because actually at a biological survival level we're trained we're wired we're practiced at noticing danger and problems so they don't kill us or eat us basically it goes back quite a way that particular urge but that's what we're looking out for a lot of the time we're trained if things are fine we ignore them because they're not going to eat us so we don't need to worry about them and consequently in any situation with ourselves, with others with circumstances what we can notice is the way the mind picks up the problems the issues the limitations the difficulties newspapers are full of them 
You know, in any day on this earth, way more people were kind to their neighbour than had an argument with them and hit them with a frying pan. But what gets into the newspaper? The cake that was handed over the fence or the frying pan that bopped someone on the head? It's always the frying pan. That's what gets into the newspaper. And somehow we think that's the whole of the truth of it out there. And it's nothing like that, actually, if we look carefully. And so one of the real skills of life is learning to see with appreciation what's there. Not denying or disregarding that, of course, there are unskillful um, and unwholesome activities and qualities that need to be addressed, whether in ourselves or in our communities or our world, to not just act out of what is unskillful or reactive, but at the same time to really honour what is wholesome, what is beautiful. And this attention to the positive, to what we appreciate, is what brings forth a sense of loving, a sense of caring, a sense of kindliness, and of the natural wish to treat with respect and care. There's a, there's a story, a lovely story I'd like to share with you that speaks about the power of this. And it's, um, it's actually a, a quoted from a book um, by Jack Cornfield, interestingly, called The Wise Heart. And he, he records this story of a, um, of a teacher, a high school teacher in America. On one particularly fidgety and distracted afternoon, a high school teacher told her class to stop all their academic work. She let her students rest while she wrote on the blackboard a list of the names of everyone in the class. Then asked them to copy the list. She instructed them to use the rest of the period to write beside each name one thing they liked or admired about that student. At the end of the class, she collected the papers. Weeks later, on another difficult day, just before winter break, the teacher again stopped the class. She handed each student a sheet with his or her name on top. On it, she had pasted all the 26 good things the other students had written about that person, that they'd noticed about them. And they smiled and, gra and gasped in pleasure. So many beautiful qualities had been noticed about them. Three years later, this teacher received a call from the mother of one of her former students. Robert had been a, a cut-up. I don't know what that means, but I'm guessing the way it's said, it's sort of maybe someone who caused a bit of trouble, because, but also one of her favourites, so it suggests anyway. And his mother sadly passed on this terrible news that Robert had been killed in the Gulf War. The teacher attended the funeral where many of Robert's former friends and high school classmates spoke. And just as the service was ending, Robert's mother approached her. She took out a worn piece of paper, obviously folded and refolded many times, and said, This was one of the few things in Robert's pocket when the military retrieved his body. It was the paper on which the teacher had so carefully pasted the 26 things his classmates had admired. Seeing this, Robert's teacher's eyes filled with tears. As she dried her wet cheeks, another former student standing nearby opened her purse, pulling out her own carefully folded page and confessed that she always kept it with her. A third ex-student said that his page was framed and hanging in his kitchen. Another told how the page had become part of her wedding vows. 
And so the story continues. Something very powerful about our ability to recognize what is worthy of appreciation in ourselves and in another. To be able to take some time to honor what is worthy of honor. When we do this, we find that quite naturally the heart begins to open. It's a kind of a training where we see the habitual and in a way survival function driven urge to notice the problems, where we see its limitation. And we start to say, okay, there's another possibility to come into, to bring our mind, to turn our attention to what we care about, to what we love about, to what we appreciate about another, or about ourselves. This is something truly important. And when we appreciate something, when we see appreciation for something, there's an interesting way in which in that word, in our language, it means not just that we value something, but to when something when we appreciate something, we value it. But when something appreciates, it becomes even more valuable. There's a way in which there's a nourishing that takes place of our heart and ourselves and each other in that, in that seeing, in that way of... Um, being able to orient ourselves. And so much of what we start to understand is possible for us is <clears throat> when we're present, when we're awake, when we're actually here in touch with what's happening in the immediacy of our experience, which is kind of the foundation of all practice, in that place we have the possibility and the capacity to make a choice about how we attend, about how we engage in accordance with what really serves us. Now the Buddha spoke about wise attention as a foundation of spiritual practice and of the path of freedom. And It's interesting because wise attention isn't about what we pay attention to and saying these things are wise to attend to and those things are not. That's not how he defined it, interestingly. It was much more about what's the effect of paying attention to this kind of thing in this kind of way. And if doing so gives rise to something wholesome, then that's wise attention. And if doing so gives rise to something that's not skillful or wholesome, that's unwise or unskillful attention. So we can see that it's not some kind of, kind of rule that always this must be so in this way. We must only look at these things and never look at those things, or always look in one way or another way. But we need to observe what happens. So when I pay attention to myself, if I focus on all my limitations, what happens? Hmm. I don't necessarily feel my heart open. That's clear. But if I pay attention to myself and just acknowledge something wholesome, something beneficial, to remember maybe a kind deed that I've done. Oh, okay, yeah. That, that brings a, a softening and opening. And we see, oh, that's a skillful way to attend. Of course, if what we find ourselves doing is only ever noticing the good things, we think, wow, I'm just this great, perfect, amazing, you know, godlike human being, then it might be useful for balance to notice also some of the places where we 
aren't quite so perfect. But interestingly, that doesn't really seem to be the issue for many people I meet. It's not a Western culture phenomena that people think they're unrealistically amazing. Actually, mostly we're tragically lacking in confidence, it seems, in the amazingness that we really are. So there's this possibility we have of of really finding a place of love for ourselves, for others. Really opening and deepening to it to a sense of cherishing ourselves. And even if it might feel a bit clunky sometimes, and practice can feel clunky, it's like it's not just sort of happening smoothly or flowing, but that's the nature of it, it seems. That's the nature of it. I've so many times been sitting in practice feeling like nothing's happening, it's going nowhere, it's not working, and then at some point we realize, oh, something shifted. It doesn't come necessarily with a big sign saying, something shifted. Look, you know, it's, it's just somewhere in our life we notice, oh, it's a little different. I remember hearing Sharon Salzberg, one of the teachers again from America, who's a, kind of one of the say, loving kindness gurus, you say. It's one of her, her subjects that she's very um, well known for, for teaching and, and having explored really wonderfully. And she, I remember her observing how she kind of felt for a long time that just this, all these, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, didn't seem to be doing anything. And then she said how she noticed she knocked something over. And the, the same old, oh, you klutz, or oh, you're a klutz, that same old voice that would come back. And she said, but then she said, oh, you klutz, you're a klutz, but I love you. And she, oh, oh, gosh, not having realised something had shifted in her. That I could, she could still make a mistake. And I was saying that as I was waving my arms around, thinking I'll probably knock a glass of water over here. Just it's the kind of thing that happens when you. So I was being careful, um, talking about such other people's. Don't usually quote other people's little mistakes. But anyway, the beautiful thing there of um, seeing oh something changes and we hadn't even realised it was happening. It's like plants that are growing. But the seed is under the soil and we haven't seen the shoots yet. And they're growing and they're growing. And it looks like nothing's happening, but something's happening. It's the nature of how life grows. Often gently, quietly, but ultimately unstoppably. When we place, I think I said, a seed in warmth with moisture, it grows. It grows. And we, we find ourselves in a situation where there is so much disconnection. There is so much fear and suspicion, so much hostility. As we've become, in our culture, so much, in a way, more fortunate and privileged at a material level that we can all have one of everything for ourselves, each of us. Our own car, our own house, our own television. Every single person in the family has, can have their own device to watch various entertainment things on, so we don't have to argue over which channel to put it on. Remember that? All those years ago? Which channel shall we watch? No. As many televisions as there are people, or computers and tablets, in most houses these days, in our world at least, in this Western so-called paradise. And yet part of the effect of that is we actually are much less in relationship with each other. 
We're much less having to make those sort of like little compromises whereby we come together because we don't have to. And the degree of alienation, separation, disconnection, division that that leads to is it's really painful for us. So there's something very lovely that happens when we come and we can plonk ourselves into a space like this with all these other people and actually part of what the gift of being in silence together is we actually start to feel each other. We have to sense the humanness of each other. And we don't have to worry about the complexity of personalities and negotiations because that's just kind of taken out of, the, out of the picture for a little while in the context of a silent retreat. And, and although, of course, we might still be hesitant or cautious around others, and it's okay, it's not without its wisdom, some degree of caution. But at the same time, we might start to notice some sense of, oh, oh yeah, we feel the people around us. We maybe notice and we're touched by the, the dedication of someone else engaging in their practice that might inspire us when we're sort of thinking, do I really want to go out and do walking meditation in the wind and the rain and the wildness, the cold? We see someone else doing it, we think, oh yeah, I'll give it a go. And we see we carry each other, we support each other. And we do. This practice is something we support each other in. And the very practice of loving kindness, of wishing well, of turning towards this capacity of the heart, was something the Buddha first taught to some of his followers who were practicing out not outside in the dark in a forest and became afraid that there might be scary beings there. And he didn't say, oh, there's nothing to be worried about or, you know, just go watching, go on and, you know, ignore all of that. He said, oh, look, this is a useful response to fear. When fear arises, it's sometimes helpful just to turn around and extend a sense of kindliness to ourselves, or to connect with someone else who we care about and wish well towards them. Sort of like it brings us into contact with something that's really supportive. And... Um, can be really helpful sometimes when we're angry. You know, we often think, oh, if I'm feeling angry with someone, then I should, I should practice, I should cultivate loving kindness towards this person. And of course, actually, that's sometimes really helpful, but in fact, what's often more helpful initially is when we're feeling angry to recognize that's because at some level we are hurting or afraid or in pain under pressure in some way. And what I've noticed is when I'm feeling angry or irritated with someone, what I actually need to do is loving kindness for myself. It's like, oh, oh, there's something about this. This is hard for you. Now, it might be obvious what's hard for me, or I might not be able to tell what it is. It's just, oh, it's hard for me. You know, it's funny sometimes with family members. We're deeply fond of them and yet profoundly irritated by them. And sometimes I can see why that is, and sometimes it's not the case. Not all family members are all the time, but you might know that experience occasionally. And being able to just, rather than think, why can't I just be filled with caring for this person who I actually love when I'm not <laughs> full of that right now? I'm full of, mm. So, oh, oh, you're suffering, you're in pain, there's something hard here. Okay, so there's a place for figuring that out and working out what the issue is and attending to it, yes. That's important too. But often what it needs first is just that place of acknowledgement. Oh, there's suffering. Oh, can I meet that with kindliness? Can I bring caring and friendliness to me, to this being 
in this condition of difficulty or struggle right now. Now, whether that be struggling with someone else or struggling in some way with some part of myself or my own experience, the same. When we're struggling, it's so important and so helpful to be able to just turn to that place to see, oh, this is hard for me. It's like, oh, this is hard for you. Ah, okay, yeah. That's how it is. And then there's a kind of a, a sense of a kindliness, a kind of a softening that can come. And we need to practice this because there are many scary, challenging situations we might encounter in our lives, in our worlds. And yet when we start to attend to that habitual response of looking for the problem and the fear or the <coughs> anger that can arise around the encountering with that which is imperfect, it's sort of important for us to contemplate, to reflect. You know, the, the Buddha spoke of the fact that in life all of us encounter that which is difficult and hard to bear. None of us has the life without this. All human beings from those in the most difficult conditions to those who seem to be incredibly fortunate. Nonetheless, there are challenges and difficulties for them too. That this is part of the nature of our life. And what it needs is for us to meet it with kindness, to bring a caring to it as a foundation for also then being able to understand it and transform through understanding the nature of how we become entangled with suffering, to find freedom with it and in the midst of it. But when we, when we work with a little, when we start to be able to handle the patterns of reactivity, the the very quick reflex mechanisms of contraction, of closing down, of withdrawing, of fear, of aversion. There's, there's actually a natural caring. It's, it's not something that's a stranger to us. We know it, all of us. It's the natural condition of our hearts, in fact. It's not just the natural condition of our hearts. It's actually the natural condition of all things. This might sound a little strange, but... You know, when we talk about gravity, what are we talking about? You know, the uh, great discovery of, was it? I've forgotten who it was that discovered it. Um, but anyway, someone very wise. Was it Newton? Or Yeah. Yeah. I think today is the 100th anniversary of Einstein's discovery of relativity. Um, and uh, they were saying that this is the, the one thing that, in a way, put Newton's discoveries in the shade it seems, but uh, I'm at risk of um, diverging here, so I'll just haul myself back. Gravity. You know what gravity is? It's a word that we think explains something. And you know what it explains. You all know what gravity is, isn't it? Things with mass are attracted to things with mass. They get pulled together when they're close enough to act on the other. That's gravity. This is one of the universal properties of all matter living 
so-called or not living, that it's actually attracted to. And if it gets close enough, it will pull itself into contact with anything it can. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? One of the, in fact, pretty much the basic characteristic of all material things is it wants to be close with other material things. That's it. It might not have a psychological experience corresponding to ours around that, but it's like, oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? There's this sense of this pull to closeness that matter expresses, and of course, how much more than that do living beings and human beings drawn to that connecting, to that closeness? Not just because it heals the, the pain of disconnection and of being caught in patterns of reactivity, not just because of that, but because it expresses something that's profoundly true about what it is that we are, about what is most fundamentally true, what it, what it means to be alive, to be a human being. To be a part of life. And so at one level it's about understanding that we are a part of life. That we're not somehow outside of life. Nature isn't something that somehow is other than what we are. We are it. Inevitably, unstoppably. David White writes about this in the poem Everything is waiting for you. He says, Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny, hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Everything is waiting for you. So it's not some outer condition that needs to be different. It's actually our own capacity to enter into this life fully, unconditionally. The 
the capacity to open our heart. That we gently and steadily cultivate and develop through turning towards this capacity of appreciation, through bringing forth this responsiveness of, of a willingness to just see what's possible and wishing well for another, for ourselves. The Buddha was once asked by his, um, his cousin and attendant and good friend, Ananda. He said, Sir, would it not be true to say that half of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness? And the Buddha responded, he said, Actually, Ananda, no, it would not be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness. So what might he have meant by this? Because in Buddhist teaching and practice, if you're familiar with it, and uh, I've spent most of my adult life pretty much engaged in this and not much else, a lot of the teaching, a lot of the practice, a lot of what's involved isn't directly and specifically about loving-kindness practice or that quality per se. It's one of many different qualities which are, are valued and appreciated and um, supported in the practice, encouraged in the practice. But what might the Buddha mean to say that the whole of our practice is, the cult is for the cultivation, for the development of loving-kindness? So what it seems to me is that in this process of opening our hearts, of connecting with the loving capacity, in the slow and gentle but steady development and growth of that capacity that takes place through the practice, through our willingness, through our courage and through our patience, that in this, that the very nature of the experience of feeling our hearts open, the very nature of what love is as a quality is it's that it has the capacity to heal the sense of separateness, to heal the sense of gap, distance or disconnect that we perceive or that we experience between ourselves and others, between ourselves and the world. And that this is really at the core and the heart of our deepest suffering, is the sense of not just being different or other or, or separate from, but somehow that we are not that. That we are apart from that, that we are separate from this. That love sees through that separation. That the nature of the response from love is that it treats others as ourselves, ourselves not different than another. Because love, when it's there, sees whatever it sees as not other than itself, as not separate from itself. It's the nature of love that it doesn't see disconnect. It sees connection. It is connection. And in that it brings about a healing and a wholeness. And wholeness is what happens, is what we experience, what we start to recognize when that separation begins to dissolve and break down, when the appearance of separateness no longer convinces us 
that it represents the fundamental truth of things. Because of course there is the appearance of separateness and I'm over here and this body sits here and your body sits where your body's sitting right now and it's useful to understand that at a certain level because you know it's when it's time for dinner it's probably going to be really helpful if I try and put food into this mouth and you likewise and if we did it differently it would get really complicated and messy. So that's natural, operational, functional, healthy and yet there's a deeper truth than that to be seen, to be understood. That ultimately there is just what is this. There is not this and that. Me and you, self and other. There's just this. Expressed in a myriad of forms and shapes. Shantideva, the poet and mystic and teacher from uh, India in the 6th century. He said, just as we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see all beings as limbs of embodied life? Can we not see the truth of this? Because as we start to see this, as we start to sense this, as the truth of this starts to speak in the depth of our hearts, of our consciousness, of our beings, then what we, what we realize, what we discover is that it's very much the nature of what it is that we are, that it loves, we could say. The language is a little clunky here. But it, love is the nature of what we are, we could say, or at least one primary aspect or expression of what it is that we fundamentally are, of what is most true. And this is a, a spiritual truth that all great traditions seek to point to, seek to reveal in their own different ways. And that this is inherent, is intrinsic, is natural, is inevitable, not inevitable, it's, it's, it's something we can't lose. We may find our contact with it, our access to it becomes limited, but if we're alive, it's there. If it wasn't, we'd be dead. And as we start to trust this, as we start to work with the process of bringing it forth more and more fully, Cultivating loving-kindness, as we've been doing, and in other ways that one could. Then this, this capacity, this kindliness, we see that it's something boundless. Because the boundaries that we find it limited by have been constructed, but they're not fundamentally what's most true the separations, the lines that have become somehow it seems drawn or imprinted in our consciousness that says this place or this person or this part of myself is worthy of the love. But that person or this group or this part of myself is not. That those lines, those separations are something fabricated and ultimately untrue. And yet we need to understand them, we need to work with them. And part of what happens in the practice is we encounter 
as we turn towards, as we seek to cultivate the heart, we encounter those places where reactivity, where judgment, where fear, or where anger and aggression may arise for us, directed towards others, directed towards ourselves. And it's really important to be understanding and compassionate with ourselves in those places. Not setting up some idea of, oh gosh, I should be full of boundless love for all beings in all moments. Even if that is fundamentally the truth of our nature. Our journey is the uncovering and the working with the ways in which it's not yet able to fully manifest as such. And this is the journey of awakening. This is the journey of freeing our hearts. This is the journey of growing into the fullness of what it is to be. What is possible for us to be as human beings, to be awake. And in this awakening of loving-kindness that is boundless, the heart itself is unbound. Life itself is unbound. The heart and all things find freedom in this. And this is the potential of our practice. This is the potential of all of us as human beings. And something worthy to, to practice even in the face of the challenges. In the service and support of this deepening. That this deepening is not just for our own welfare and well-being, but for all of life and all beings. And just one thought, or one deed born of kindness, more than there was before, the world is a kinder place. And all beings are supported in their movement towards more and more fully embodying this. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments.
So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we may we deepen in the courage to meet that which is challenging for us. May we come to trust in our natural capacity for kindliness. And may we live more and more with a open heart in contact with the boundlessness of life and the fullness of loving kindness for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. 